Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. This is part of our forum series. The background noise you hear is the, the attendees networking as hard as are, they can. There are a thousand people surrounding us right <laughs> yeah. now, so we can barely hear each other speak. Yeah. Hopefully you can hear us. We're not even sure if that's true or not. <laughs> and the third person joining us at the table is Jamie McKenna, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the newly minted Minto Apartment REIT. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome, Jamie. So, Jamie, we always start these podcasts off with just background on the guests. So, you know, why don't you explain how you got into Minto or even before that, how you kind of got interested in real estate? Sure. So, I actually didn't start being interested in real estate. My background is uh, I'm a CPA. Okay. Uh, I studied accounting, then I studied valuation, studied business, and worked in telecom and IT at Bell Canada for my first, I call it my first career. And... Bell went through a big restructuring in 2008. It was all in the news. They were planning to go private. The culture changed. There was a lot of layoffs. And I started to think about wanting to work for a smaller company where I felt like I could, I could make change. At that time, I had been moved from Toronto to Ottawa because I was working on a lot of the M&A work with Bell. And I got a call from a mystery company. And it was kind of strange. But, but I went and met in this industrial office in the middle of Nepean, Ottawa. And put two and two together who it was and we just kind of hit it off and it wasn't so much that it was real estate it was the family company and and they always called themselves a family corporation Uh, meant that they had value around controls and governance and procedures but still had that entrepreneurial spirit so I actually started on the accounting side running how did they how did they find you how did they know to you and reach out to you they were working with a local headhunter, okay. who coincidentally was the headhunter that I called to say, I'm thinking about taking another So another it's step. really kind of coincidental. It was serendipitous. Yeah. Very, very much so. We, it's a common theme as we do this. We've probably done 50 episodes, and almost every single one, as people are telling their story, it's luck. Yeah. Often. Right? That's well, what comes down to hard work, sure, but it's always a lot of luck. You know, it's funny you say that. If you ever hear Roger Greenberg speak, our chairman and one of the, uh, the second generation brothers, he always says, if I had a choice between luck and hard work, I'd take luck every single time. Yeah. So, so yeah. maybe, again, serendipitous for me to be at Minto. But yeah, I started running the accounting shop there, like the Ottawa accounts payable shop, and we grew quickly. And I slowly grew the, the we consolidated the accounting team. And then uh, I guess it was about four years ago, I was getting involved in all the deals from a back office perspective. And my boss tapped me on the shoulder and said, we think you should move into investments. You know, you've got the finance thing down. You've been doing it for 17 years, and, and it's good to have that as a as a backbone, but you've kind of got a love for the deal. I don't sure. want to say art of the deal because it's very Donald Trump. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so here I am today, you know, 10 years later at the company and, you know, started kind of running a little AP shop and, and now getting to travel the country and do deals and work on the growth plan for a public company. You know, we went from 100% private capital to six JVs and funds and a REIT and yeah. raising a billion dollars of external capital on top of the REIT. So it's been, it's been amazing. And so how big was Minto when you joined? You know, you just, whether you want to do, you know. AUM? Yeah, or, or, or Unicount, Unicount or however you want to classify it. That's a good question. When I started, I would say we were probably 10,000 units off the top of my head. Now we're, and, and we've grown and shrunk because we've spent a lot of time over the last, I'd say six, seven years cleaning up the balance sheet. 
And when you when you join a private company or family company, there's often some legacy things and like a cottage. There was a cottage on the balance sheet that we had to deal with and a gas bar in Gatineau. But we, so we, we kind of- Real solid assets. Yeah, exactly. And for some reason, they came up in every quarterly review that I have to talk about the gas bar in Gatineau. But we put a plan together with the family to clean up the balance sheet, clean up our strategy. We actually had some industrial assets we sold off as well. So when I say we sort of grew, but at the same time, we were culling other assets. So sure. now we're about 14,000 units. So maybe go backwards from when you started, what was the history of the company and how did Minto come to be? Maybe talk about the family a little bit, how they ended up where they are today. For sure. That's actually my favorite topic. I okay, love the story of Minto. Yeah. And, what's, and what's neat about working for a family company with such a history is there's all these like urban myths that you kind of have to validate with the real Greenbergs as to whether it happened or not. They started 65 years ago, so 1955. Originally a sawmill company, became a home builder. So they, they started as a, a Ottawa single-family home builder. There were four brothers, four Greenberg brothers. Two of them eventually left, and Gilbert and Irving were the ones who continued on the company. They expanded into Florida in 1978. I remember that because it's the year I was born. Roger doesn't like when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to disclose that. No, I know. It used to be okay because it was young, and now I'm over 40. And it's not as funny a story. <laughs> the same year Adam was born, right? So. 78, yeah. yeah, yeah. There, there. And, then, and then they expanded into Toronto in the 80s. So there were seven siblings, and two were the children of Irving, and five were the children of Gilbert. And Irving actually passed away in the early 90s from cancer, and he asked... Roger to take over the company. And there's a lot more to that story. Roger will talk about sitting around with the family during the funeral and assessing who, who should take over. And he wasn't the oldest. He also wasn't Irving's son, but he was the one that Irving wanted to see appointed to the head of the company. So I think that was about 1992. He was the CEO until 2013. And at that time, Michael Waters, who's the current CEO, was appointed and Roger became chairman of the board. And Michael Waters not a family member. No, no. So a good point is that in the 2000s, later 2000s, sort of in the time I joined, they started to assess how do we move to external management. Roger and his brothers really understood what some of the implications were when you go first generation, second generation, third generation. And by bringing in external management, he was able to ensure that mitigation of those family implications sure. that, that can happen. And, and it still gave him the freedom that the family could be involved, but still had the influence of external management. Sometimes Michael calls it professional management, and Roger will say, we've always been professional, it's <laughs> external management. So Michael was the is external. Everybody who, who works on a day-to-day basis, like the presidents and, and the C-suite executives, are all external now. But Roger still retains a role, both chairman on the REIT and chairman of Minto. And what about third generation? You know, the third generation, there's a couple that actually work in the company. Yeah. There's quite a few of the third generation, right. but nobody has expressed a, a big desire to run the company. And I think right now with us working so much with external capital, there's even less of a desire sure. to do so. Yeah, sure. More structured and public, it's going to be a exactly. take on it. Yeah. It was really and, a transition out of a family entity to a, to a public company. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real mix, right? Like what... What's great about the Greenbergs and what, what they bring is a real entrepreneurial spirit. They're really truly developers at heart. And so we still have that benefit and we still can go to them for guidance and leadership. But at the same time, we're managing professional uh, capital, either private professional capital or uh, public capital through the REIT. Well, we're on the topic, because I always find it interesting. I'm not sure anybody else does, but I'll ask it anyway. How do they, or how, what's the discussions around culture and maintaining that culture? I mean, I'm sure you're going to say entrepreneurialism and all that, but you know, if the family vibe 
that's a different culture as you enter, you know, implement corporate management or professional management. How do they maintain that culture? How do you keep it to feel like it's still a family business? External management, not professional Sorry, management. I know. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I said, I was like, that was wrong. I know. Yeah. Jamie's going to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think when I joined, there was a real recognition by the family for the need to bring in, you know, internal controls, reporting. They knew that if we could access third-party capital, we could grow faster. And they knew part of that process was to become an institutional mm-hmm. capital manager, right? So they, we kind of did it side by side in that the family stayed involved but left it to people within the business to build that professional platform, institutional platform. And they still spend time with us. And they're still, like, like I said, Roger's on the board. If, once in a while, I still talk to Alan Greenberg. And, and it's just great to have kind of their perspective on things. And, and it is a real mix of public corporation with that family feeling. And, you know, entrepreneurial is one aspect, one value. But I'd say the other thing is integrity. And Roger's very, very big on, on integrity, and, and that's something that he, he promotes through the organization is, you know, how we do our deals, how we deal with our partners, how we deal with our vendors. You know, we, we, we did a system conversion about six years ago, and, and I remember him being concerned about the small vendors we were using, the small trades we were using, making sure they're getting paid on time because they knew we were their bread and butter. Meanwhile, I'm more worried about data conversion into the GL. So it's yeah, bit, sure. But he really gives you that perspective to step back and think about where it really Which is matters. important, right? I mean, you don't want to lose that feeling that they've instilled over the 50 years that the, the company's been around. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Roger's like one of the most down-to-earth people you can meet. I feel like I'm doing like the Roger show and I'll stop <laughs> in a minute. I think it's just because we've sat next to each other for probably about seven years. And he's down-to-earth. He's funny. He's, he's approachable. And, and, you know, you can sit with him and, and you really learn. Yeah, him. yeah. No, and that leadership is key, right? That that's where it all comes down. For we had Ramco Dahl on a couple of previous episodes talking to him about Quadrille, and he wouldn't say it. I was poking him the same kind of way with you about you know how does the culture, how do you keep the culture, and ultimately it's because of Remco and who he is, and that just kind of permeates throughout the entity. Yeah. And so I think it sounds like Roger has sort of the same kind of the yeah. same kind of influence on just the way that the the, the pulse of the of the institution. Right? He did, and then he hired Michael, who. You know, he'll tell the story about when they're hiring, he flew out to uh, Vancouver, which is where Michael was based, to meet the family and the kids and to make sure that Michael would carry on that same culture. And, and Michael definitely brings a ton of energy to the table. It keeps you jazzed. You're always, you just always want to do more with him. Neat. You mentioned the transition from family to more of a, a public entity. The conversion, the reconversion, which is probably the most public version of that transition, that was less than a year ago, your IPO. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that process? Because you were... You were a key part of that entire process, the, the roadshow leading up to it and the actual conversion. Can you kind of discuss that? Yeah, it was a lot of hours, a lot of sleepless nights, but we actually did it really quickly, surprisingly, is that we made the decision, I think it was about the January, so January 2018. We had been assessing it and analyzing it, of course, long before then, but we made the actual decision to hit go in January. And that lead up to managing institutional capital meant we were ready for the scrutiny, the due diligence, the reporting. Like we really had our teeth cut and the bankers looked back and said they've never seen, and maybe they're being nice to us, but they said they'd never seen an organization as prepared as Minto. And I think that comes from the many years of, of having to convert to institutional capital. I was on the team along with the, a number of the other executives and it's quite an experience. Like it's, it's one of those things where you, you really do work 24 hours a day and I remember some nights shutting down at 3 a.m. and then waking up to emails at 5 a.m. and 
the CFO kind of going to bed at 7 a.m. Like it literally was a lot of hours. And that's actually driven less by your, how prepared you are to the deadlines, your filing deadlines, your, your preliminary prospectus, your final prospectus. And you really have to hit those, those timelines. In the private world, you can kind of push timelines a little bit because mm-hmm. there's less filing requirements, security requirements. The roadshow was interesting. The way we structured it was our present COO, who's Rob Pike, Michael Waters and our CFO went on the roadshow. I sat on all the preparation, just having all the background on the deals and the growth and been in the business for, for 10 years. And it was, I was like the understudy if somebody got sick or just decided they didn't want to do it. I could step into either the finance or the operational role. So I got to sit in on all the preparation, which I think there must have been 15 sessions. And there was a script. Everybody has a script. Everybody studied the script. And then there were their Q&A and they brought in all kinds of different bankers and external parties just to test you. And you really learn what you can and can't say. You learn how, like, I'm great with you guys. You can ask me anything. You're not going to get anything out of me. <laughs> I've been, on, all the road, I've been yeah. on the roadshow training. And, and then you do, so I've done some of the subsequent non-deal roadshows as well. And they're a little bit less preparation. They're a little bit more off the cuff. But uh, it, it, was, it was fascinating to watch. How long were you on the road for? It was two weeks. So I, I ended up not going on the roadshow right, for two okay. weeks, but I was on the training for probably right. three weeks and that was before. North America-wide? It was. It was Canada-focused, right. but there were a couple stops in the U.S., and, and it was, it's grueling, right? Like, mm. you, you get in the car at 7.30 in the morning, and, and I would be in touch with them, just kind of cheerleading. And, you know, the first day, it was like, oh, we don't have any orders. Second day, no orders. And then by the time we were done, we were many, many, many times oversubscribed. So, so what, what point did any sort of self-doubt disappear or any sort of anxiety about the— I think it wasn't until the end. Like, and—, and Minto, I'll tell you, the one part of the culture is we're perfectionists. We're perfectionists. We're hard on ourselves until the final... You don't come across that way at all, by the way. No, I'm not, not a big type A personality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're no, we're perfectionists. And so we wouldn't let ourselves relax until the final meeting, the final order, and we knew we were fully covered. So, so it wasn't... I think there was just this superstition that if you put your guard down, then all the orders would yeah. disappear, even though they were always. <laughs> in the mortgage up. world, of course, we hear that one, but not anymore, but the CMBS issuances and those roadshows, it's a very similar experience, yes. right? Where you've got to go and you're waiting for subscriptions, you've got yeah. no orders, and you're, you know, it's, yeah. it can be grueling. It is. grueling. It is. And, and I mean, even just the deal we just did, it was none of the lawyers would say congratulations until like the deed of sale was registered. Da, da, da. Even though you knew everything was going to happen, like, we were superstitious right till the end. So, I mean, it's not uncommon to see a deal fall apart at literally the last minute. It does happen. Yeah. Hopefully, not the scale you're purchasing. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, there were. I probably would have cried, and I'm not a crier. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how big is the the REIT now? Sure. So we we came out. and We actually did a, a 200 million dollar offering equity. We exercised the over allotment, so it ended up being 230 million equity about 1.1 billion of assets. I will talk, we still have assets on our private side as well. With the recent acquisitions, we're just over 1.4 billion AUM. So we've grown, we started out 4,279 units, to put it in unit context, apartment units, mm-hmm. not, uh, not LP units. And we've added, I think about 1,700 units since then. So in about nine months, we've significantly, significantly grown the reach. Is there a difference between the way you approach the assets you put in the REIT and what kind of attributes those assets have for the REIT versus the private funds? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about the REIT yeah, strategy sure, yeah. and then, then how the private piece comes into it. So, so we consider ourselves the, the first purely urban multi-residential REIT. And there's lots of urban retail REITs, office REITs, but we're pure urban. We're located Ottawa, Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton, and recently Montreal. 
Our focus right now is the top six cities. We look at walk score, we look at transit orientation, like we really want to be that, that urbanized REIT that, you know, the people coming into the core of the city wanting to live in the core of the city. And, and we're providing both the amenities and the access through both transit and walkability. We haven't invested in Vancouver yet. We're, is, we're it taking, in, is it in the targets right now? It's, yeah, it's, it's it, like I said, it's top six and, and we're in five of the six. Vancouver is just a bit trickier. It's, as everybody knows, it's expensive and it's going through a big change, especially on the, the multifamily side with changes in legislation with the new NDP government. So we're stepping lightly as we go there. I'm sure we'll find something, but we're very thoughtful. We don't grow just to grow. We're very thoughtful. For every deal that we bring forward to the trustees, we've probably looked at 15 deals. And, you know, we have all these levels of filters and analysis and, and the team needs to be engaged. And Vancouver, we just haven't found that, that asset yet, but I think, it's, I think it's coming. Well, part of the problem, too, is you're not looking to buy a templex. You're looking for sizable transactions. There's only a handful that happen in these cities every year. That's and right. they're competitive. Well, in Vancouver especially, right? They, we come in, and, and every year we go on a broker roadshow meet with them just to say, we're here, we're interested. And they're like, you're going to have to buy 25, 50-unit buildings, which is, is fine, but we need to buy a few of those at the same time because we need, for us, scale needs to start at a minimum of about 200 units for it to make sense from a management platform standpoint. Yeah, and that's the capital you're competing against is sort of disconnected capital, right? We've had this conversation a number of times where their motivations for purchasing assets and you know, putting that equity into those assets is different than the motivations that you've got. They've got different yield targets. In fact, they're not yeah. even looking at yield targets, right? I mean, it's impossible to calculate their motivations often if it's foreign capital. Yes. So you can't compete against that ultimately using, you know, proper, you know, calculations and yield, you know, looking at cash on cash. That's not the way that they're assessing the, the investment. Worrying about your dividend payout. Well, and we've, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're thinking, I need to get this money out of this country because I may not have access to it if I don't deploy it. So, I mean, what's that worth to them? <laughs> yeah, they, exactly. It's either I get it out and it, or I don't have it. So, what does it matter if I'm losing money on the investment? Well, At least you, I've got the money. Did you read the article about all the vacant like mansions in Vancouver mm-hmm. and university students are renting them for $1,000 a month just, yeah. to, just to have the capital in Canada? But, yeah, for us, like, I could, we're also a creative group and... You know, maybe it's a forward sale. Maybe we partner with a developer. So, so we'll look at everything. But what I keep reminding everybody, including my team, is the REIT's still small. Like, we came out a bill, just over a billion. We're a billion four now. So we have to be very focused and thoughtful because every addition to our portfolio is meaningful, either from an accretion or dilution standpoint. We're not cap REIT. Maybe one day we will be that size. And, and it's easier to make decisions that, are, that vary in terms of yield, et cetera. But right now, everything moves the needle. So we're very cautious about that. Being new, are you being more heavily scrutinized, do you think? Nobody could possibly scrutinize us as bad as we scrutinize ourselves. (laughs) We're very, very focused on. So yeah, I I would say the questions we get from the analysts and we see our stock move, they're all one-tenth of what we've asked ourselves internally. And and so we're ready for it. So I think, you know, we want to execute with excellence and... I think we've done that so far with the recent equity raise, with the growth, with the, the original IPO. And so I think as long as we continue to be thoughtful and I don't want to say conservative, but semi-conservative in, in how we grow and how we improve the profitability of, of the REIT, it's going to work out well. But you asked about private Yeah, private let's go side, to the yeah. private side. What, what does that look like and how does that differ from the REIT? So that would be probably the most common question we, we got on the roadshow and in different meetings. We actually have $2 billion of assets under management on the private balance sheet. They're all held through either joint ventures or funds. We have two funds and I think four joint ventures. 
And our goal is that we want the REIT to be our sole multifamily vehicle, multi-residential vehicle. So we want to get our partial interests in these JVs and funds into the REIT and continue to manage the institutional private capital. So we just did one as a perfect example was Leslie York Mills. We own three towers there, 50-50 with Hospitals of Ontario Pension Plan, Hoop. And we just rolled in our 50%. So no difference to REIT, to, um, to Hoop. To Hoop, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no difference to Hoop. We're still managing them the same, same people and everything, but now our piece is within the REIT. And our goal is to look at that $2 billion of assets that we have and determine which ones do and which ones don't. Which fit the REIT's core sort of value. Exactly. And how do the analysts question that or challenge that? I think there's a lot of questions around conflict out of the gate. Like, I mean, the first question was, why didn't we do it all at the same time? Like, are you holding back prized assets? Exactly. Away from the read holders. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we were able to, to explain that because we vended in everything we owned 100%. We didn't leave anything that was multi-residential. We didn't leave anything behind. And it gets complicated when you have starting having partners. Exactly. Yeah. And it takes time, right? We need their consent. We need to sign contracts. We, and there are some of the assets in the private accounts. Like we have one that's a, a discretionary private equity fund, which we actually are supposed to sell out of. So we've fully invested. We're renovating value add. And we're going to sell out of those assets. And some of them make, make sense for the REIT and some of them won't. So we just, we want to make sure that anything we bring into the REIT, it's the right partner, it's the right asset strategy, and we're not doing anything that puts us off brand of what we're, we're focused Is on. Is one of the strategies to acquire assets under the, the, the private funds, maybe value add and that sort of ret- retrofit, reposition the asset, and then once it's stabilized and, and fully cash flowing and then transition it into the REIT? Or can you do that within the REIT structure? Is buying sort of negative cash flow assets and going through that transition period? We would actually do it likely in the REIT. I mean, assuming we're not doing something crazy, uh, like opportunistic, that we just thought the risk profile didn't make sense. But our intent is to do everything within the REIT. And what's the risk profile on the the private side? Well, other than the one private equity fund, it's almost identical. It's very similar yield requirements, very similar desire in terms of assets, a mix of they like development, especially intensification on sites. They like the value-add program. So they, it's actually very symbiotic in terms of working with them in the REIT. And the value-add fund, or the fund two, as we cleverly called it, that was very opportunistic. We bought some pretty broken assets. And I would say that that might be on the edge of what the REIT's tolerance would be. And that's perfectly acceptable. You may not be able to answer this, but which one do you have the most fun you know, finding assets for? The REIT. Yeah? Yeah. Well, and I, was, I thought you might say fun too, just because you got to be a little bit more creative outside the box <laughs> thinking. But it, it, You know what? Fun too was a, it was a blast. It was, I liked it because it was a finite period of time that we were looking for these assets because it's, it's tricky. And, and it's harder work probably. It's hard work and you're looking at really funny things and then you're trying to convince people that are normally managing institutional capital, public capital, and say, hey, I got a crazy idea for yeah. you. We're going to buy this storage facility, yeah, exactly. <laughs> convert them into 400 square foot I know. micro units. I know. Yeah. It was, and that's literally like the kind of things we'd take. I remember, actually, I went on vacation once, and my VP acquisitions brought forward a deal in Fort McMurray. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> to be Fort McMurray. Well, it's a 12 cap. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that didn't go far. You are uh, mentioned that you're doing a conversion in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Which fund is that part of? And it's actually so it's an interesting structure. It's a it was a retail it is a retail asset. It sits on Fifth and Bank Street, which is the Glebe in Ottawa. It's like centerized, centerized. They, and a walk score of 96, which is considered Walker's Paradise. I know it. I'd probably rent a unit there if I didn't already own a house. But it's um, it's a retail plaza. We're converting it into a multifamily tower. 
and we'll continue to have some of the retail at the bottom. It was on Minto's books because it was retail. It didn't go into the, the REIT. But when we made the decision to put it, turn it into multifamily, we came to the REIT and said, we think this is, this is perfect. So the REIT's actually providing um, an investment facility, so a debt facility, charging a coupon, and then at stabilization, they can buy it at 95% of value. So they have an option to purchase, which I would get, I shouldn't say I should guarantee, but it would be very likely they will exercise right. the option. It's a very, I'm very excited, but I think it's my, I always say my second favorite thing, because I figure there's probably something else I'm favorite, is favorite <laughs> on the list and I'm forgetting, but it's, it's a great project. It would make the top three list for sure. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. <laughs> you also just closed a, a very large transaction, the Rock Hill. Yes. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. My hair's gray now because of that transaction, but no, it's, it's a podcast. Nobody can see it. Don't yeah, worry. <laughs> it's true. I shouldn't have confessed. I've told everybody now that I'm 40 and I have gray hair. Yeah. Rock Hill was, it was a really exciting transaction. So we came across it in fall and Ivanhoe Cambridge brought it to market. And anybody who knows Montreal, Rock Hill is like prime, prime asset. I think it's one of the top three largest rental communities in the city. It's in the Cote de Neige neighborhood. It literally checks every box of the REIT. We don't commonly come into a market with a thousand units off the bat, mm. but this just was perfect. And so we bid on it and actually, and the bid went quiet. We didn't hear anything, went over Christmas holidays, met with Ivanhoe Cambridge, and we agreed to do a deal together. Was it a, was it a bid date with multiple people at the table or were you? It was, but given the size of the transaction, there were just some complications. It didn't end up going through your normal bid process because it was just big and there weren't as, it's not as deep a pool of people that can afford that size of a transaction. And so we got a call from RBC's, the brokerage that was representing it in January and said, come meet with Ivanhoe. And we chatted about it because we knew that it would be connected around the same timing as, as the equity raise we did. So you saw it come out as part of the equity raise uh, as a use of proceeds. And we just wanted to make sure they understood how that, that whole thing would work. And they liked the Minto brand. They're very conscious of their profile in the Montreal market. They don't, they, you know, they're, they're in Montreal. They manage pension dollars. They want to make sure the right people are taking over the asset. So they were doing a portfolio rebalancing and, and they had already put lots and lots of capital in. They, they did the garage, they did the balconies, they did roofs and all the common areas. And they didn't touch amenities and they didn't touch a lot of the suites so it was perfect timing for us because now we can come in and do fitness facilities and we can do party rooms and we can do the suites and really bring it to the next level. And so it was very exciting transaction. Anything that big is, takes a lot. There's lots of twists and turns. And we closed on Tuesday, I believe. Yeah, it was Tuesday. And anyway, it's very exciting. So you're in celebratory mode right now. Well, actually, next <laughs> week we have a, on the 16th, we're going to have a party in the company and everybody's going to eat poutine and smoked meat. Perfect. <laughs> just, just to be really... Montreal themed. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and that was well, your first entrance into that marketplace. It is, it is. And we've been studying Montreal for, I'd say, two or three years. So two or three years ago, we, my team came forward and said, I think we should start looking at this market. It's, it's on fire and we might as well get in now. And so we, we underwrote a lot of deals. I call it ghost underwriting. Like we would you know, say to the broker, we're literally here just to underwrite it and understand it. Where are underwriting lands versus where the bid lands. We did that for two years. We studied the Regie, which is their, their landlord-tenant board equivalent. And we started to get really active early, early fall. And then Rock Hill came and we put all hands on deck, dropped everything, and, and we got it. And it was very, very exciting. And was that the first serious run you took at a property in uh, Montreal, other than the, the ghost underwritings? There were a couple properties 
we participated in the bids, but we, I wouldn't say we put our heart and soul into it in, in that we were still a little bit pensive around, you know, are we pricing this right? Is it the right asset? But it was the first very serious one. So what'd you pay for the thousand units? We paid, so we paid 268 million, but we actually did it with a 50-50 joint venture with investors group. So again, we still ma- plan to manage private capital and working with investors group, they're amazing partner. We own a one-third office building with them. We used to manage for them in Toronto as well on a third-party basis. And they're very quick with, like, they were able to stay in step with us in terms of how fast we wanted to do the deal and close the deal. And so we closed with them on a 50-50 basis. We're here at the Edmonton Forum. Mm -hmm. Are you looking at anything in Alberta? So we actually just closed two transactions in Calgary. Both of them were off-market transactions. I said the other day, every deal has a story. So if I bore you with my deal stories, they're exciting to me. Just we listen. love real estate stories. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. That's why we do this. Yeah. Good, good. So, so both of these were, were situations. They were local developers in Calgary. One of them, we had bought an asset from them in, I think, 2015. And another one, we'd just been talking about ways to work together. And they had been coming to us with these opportunities. We said, you know, we're kind of quiet right now. We were obviously doing the IPO, so we, could, we couldn't be active from a transaction standpoint. IPO closed and both of them called us and said, do you want to do something? And given it's off market, we were able to buy both the transactions below appraised or both assets below appraised value. And, you know, what we saw, what we see in the Calgary market is a couple things. One was we already had 144 units there in the portfolio, which is not a very reasonable scale. So these two assets brought us up to a more logical scale. There, one of them is in Quarry Park. And Quarry Park is just southeast of the city. It's an office node. It's got about a million seven of square office square feet. And now we're the only landlord in the park because the other asset we owned was there as well. And what's nice about the developer we worked with, Remington is the name of them, is that they want to work with us and they, they like us as landlords. They're not landlords and they had built these new buildings and they came to us and said, before we go to the market, we'd rather work with you. In the same case with Kaleidoscope, it's right by the University of Calgary right across from, the, from McMahon uh, Stadium and at the LRT as well, LRT station. And they're kind of these two assets that are shielded from the bigger volatility of the Calgary market in that they have this supply component from either the office node in Quarry Park or the, you know, the university, university, right? So we've been active there. We've got three towers in Edmonton right now. They were, they were previously owned by the Bernstein family and we're repositioning them. So we're about, I'd say, almost halfway through the- And those are both through the REIT? Uh, yeah, all those all, all those transactions are through the REIT. All our buying right now will be through the REIT. So when you're approaching the Alberta market, I guess maybe you answered this question already. You're really looking for isolation, looking for ways to kind of protect yourself against any more volatility that's occurring or yeah. that may occur in the future. I'd say with Calgary, it's it's definitely has wider volatility than Edmonton. Ed, what's nice about Edmonton? I always say Edmonton's Ottawa, and you know, if, with no capital. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. But they're, you know, they're rooted in a, in a government. And yeah. so they swing, but they don't swing the way Calgary does. And, and I mean, you look at pictures of downtown Edmonton 10 years ago versus today. I mean, even just since I've been coming, I guess, six years ago, it's so visually impressive what's happened with the city. Even today, I was here three years ago walking around today yeah. and there are cranes and there are buildings that I weren't here last time and there's less parking lots. Like you can feel that there's some, especially the downtown core, anecdotally, Jamie, sort of to ramble, but talking to some people during the events here at this forum, a lot of younger, younger people who said they've just moved downtown. They feel more comfortable living downtown. Yeah. They, they can walk to work. There's a vibe going on, oh, right? It's sure. t- you can feel it totally changing now. Yeah. I actually said yesterday, like maybe 25-year-old Jamie would actually live here and 
unfortunately, 40-year-old Jamie has a kid, a husband, family, yeah. house, pool. One of the ladies I was talking to was from Burlington and was sick and tired of the rat race of the Toronto life. It was like, I'm going to, I'm moving to Edmonton. Yeah. And oh, she loves it here now. She's, it's great. She loves her decision. It's got a real hipster vibe in some yeah. areas with the brewery district and... And so we love it, and I can see us continuing to invest here. I mean, the, the big thing for us is we, we have a portfolio allocation strategy. We're sort of there for Alberta right now. So the more we grow in Toronto and Montreal, the more it opens our doors to also allocate capital to the, to the Western cities as well. Do you have a distribution strategy or target in terms of balancing your risk across the, the country? Yeah, I would say we, we came out of the gate heavily Ottawa-focused. So we, I think our portfolio is about 66% Ottawa. And that's just a function of that's where we started and that's where Minto dominated. So we won't spend a lot of capital in Ottawa, with the exception that I just talked about a big development we're doing in Ottawa. But that would be more opportunistic. We want to increase our exposure in both in Montreal and Toronto. And then we'll always have a minority exposure to the West. And all these things change as you get bigger and you know, I talk about the top six cities, but maybe when we're twice our size, it's top eight cities, top 12 cities. But right now, the focus, you know, GTA, Montreal, looking in Vancouver. From a pure investment yield standpoint, which market are you most excited about? Which one's your favorite? Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> um, all of them. Yes, they're all they're, great. They're, they're, they're one, there's, they're Whis- whisper it to us now. Yeah. Yeah. Just piece. write it down. Right, here you go. Yeah. You know, they all, I was actually thinking about this the other day. They all behave so differently. Like I think Montreal is a ton of capital appreciation opportunity. They're, they've gone from sort of 5% vacancy to 2% vacancy. So I think from a growth standpoint, they have a ton of potential. GTA values just don't seem to, to be going anywhere. And, and, the GTA is in a supply crisis for rental housing. And, you know, we, there was great discussion or release about a week ago around some of, the, some of the things they want to put in place to encourage development, but that's a long road. So I think Toronto still has a ton of room to grow in, in rents and capital. Unfortunately, well. unfortunately. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's a tricky market because it's expensive, but we've been successful with a lot of our off-market transactions there. And, and again, Calgary and Edmonton, I think they're, they're good yield place. Like, I, I think they're going to kind of tick along, and you make the right investments in the right areas, you'll do well. Do you worry about Vancouver dragging down the portfolio yield if you make some two-cap acquisitions in that market? <laughs> Negative leverage. Yeah, yeah I, I'm 100% sure that would not get approved by our board of trustees. <laughs> no, we, we, we would have to do something very unique in Vancouver because, you know, I don't look at a deal on a standalone basis. I look at how the deal impacts the portfolio. And, and if it's, it's dilutive, it just doesn't make sense. So then I guess development is an answer to some of these, these challenges. So maybe talk about your development strategy, where you're looking, what you think the best opportunities are. Sure. So we actually have quite a significant development pipeline within our existing assets in terms of intensification. For the REIT specifically, we just rolled in Leslie York Mills, like I talked about. And we have zoning approval to build 192 townhomes there. And there's, there's a bunch of additional approvals that we, we need to go through. But, you know, we're hoping by next year we're in the ground on those townhomes. The other asset, we rolled in an asset, we call it Mark, Martin Grove, Rich Grove. And it's two, Rich Grove are two towers that are sort of normal market rent units. Then we have another tower and it's 236 units. And 204 of those are affordable. And we built that about... These are these. Sorry, where are these? These are Martin Grove near the airport, actually. In Ottawa. In Toronto. Oh, in Toronto. Okay. Yeah, it'd be helpful if I told yeah, you where no, I was uh, no, developing. Okay. And so there's land there to build another tower. Oh, okay. And so we're going through the, the the approvals process there. So, just those two assets alone are significant development pipeline for the REIT. I talked about the one in Ottawa and the Glebe, and then in the private accounts, there's High Park Village is one of the assets we own. There's we have development. Uh, 
potential there as well. And we're partnered with CPPIB. So right. we have quite that a- high park, And that's also in Toronto. That's also in Toronto. Yeah, that, for those listening, that's a great sort of attractive location right north of the right north of the large park in the sort of the downtown core. Yeah. And for those who don't know Aaron, he just bought a house right near there. Please develop. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, sometimes forget which city I'm in, so I have to yeah. reorient yeah. myself. That that's in Toronto, so- um, so yeah, we have, we, we have a good development pipeline and we haven't gone after raw land recently just because we have such a, such a big pipeline, but that, that is a potential as well. And I guess you're getting to the size and scope and, and reputation where you're probably getting approached by people that own land looking for, looking for equity partners. And so how do you go about that? I mean, the JV is a huge component to all of our, all major institutions. Um, and so what's your approach? Do you, are you reaching out to a lot of people saying, hey, we're, we're ready to participate or is it kind of organic or they'll come to you? It's, it's actually quite organic. I mean, within the REIT, we have restrictions as to how much development we can do. But we, on the condo side, we actually have a very active condo side where you just have a good reputation in the industry in terms of being a, a good developer and, and treating your partners well. And, and we really don't lack any kind of pipeline coming to us on the, on the development side or on the condo side. It's tricky to build like GTA land prices. You what I figured is we're averaging about two fifty a foot buildable foot in the GTA in the core. I'd have to charge five dollar rents, and I just don't know that the market's there yet. Not yet, but it's going that way. Well, it feels like geez. a couple of years, and we'll be there. Well, and people are running out of options. They're going to have to pay that amount. This is a little bit of off topic, but are you seeing anything unique? Or are you guys discussing internally sort of some different some different structures as far as the way that you're building your units or thinking about building your units? Like we hear a lot about sort of cohabitation and large, huge hallways that you can put couches in so people don't need to have living rooms in their units. Like, are you having any of those discussions to see to try to work around this affordability crisis that we've got going? It's definitely something we, we talk about. I would say one of the big priorities for Minto is always innovation, whether it's, you know, prop tech or, or how we're building, how we're building. And, and I think we're trying to understand it. So I, what you're talking about, I'd call it communal living, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's been a couple of towers, experimental towers in, in New York. And it's not we work, it's we live, I believe is what they call it. And so we're kind of keeping our eye on it. You know, we, we've talked to the group Sonder. That, so Sonder's, a, I guess they're Montreal-based. But they're similar to an Airbnb, but they'll take an entire floor of your, your oh, yeah. building. Yeah, we've heard about these yeah. guys, yeah. So we've, we haven't done anything with them, but their concept is, is interesting. So we're always trying to think outside the box and, and understand, you know, both from a tenant and from a partner side, what can we do a little bit differently? We would be in trouble, I guess, if we didn't ask about financing <laughs> and your, your, your strategies with, with financing and maybe on the private side or the REIT side or the development side, maybe we just kind of talk around how you guys approach that aspect of the business. Yeah, sh- sure. So, I mean, financing is the cornerstone. I always say it's half the deal, right? We, Thank you for the compliment. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Is that that napkin you slept on? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, when from a financing standpoint, from the REIT, we've, we've tried to be relatively conservative. So we've hovered around high 40s our loan to value. We said we'd never go above 55%. I, I think it would be really hard for us to go above 55%. We're very conscious of laddering our maturities so that not everything's coming up in 2022, for example. So, you know, we, we obviously prefer CMHC financing when we can, and, and we have a, a revolving credit facility as well within the REIT. So we're, we're pretty vanilla when it comes mm-hmm. like conservative, just like we are on the acquisition side around the debt structuring. 
And are you doing, on the development side, are you doing CMEC for the construction financing or, or predominantly conventional? It's predominantly conventional. It doesn't mean we won't. We yeah. just, we haven't had a, an opportunity where it works, where but it we've been doing, uh, yeah. doing conventional. Um, I want to go back just because it's something that's on lots of people's minds. You mentioned that affordable project where you had, a, it sounded like a, the majority of the units were affordable. Do you want to just quickly talk through why and how you got that to work? Because often people, you know, it's a great idea on paper, but it doesn't work in the real world. Yeah. No, I, I'm a big advocate of affordable housing. And, and I think when you come from humble means, you can really appreciate what people are going through trying to find a rental. I remember my parents going through that experience. So we built this asset. It was, again, on existing lands of another building that we, that we owned. It's 236 units, and 204 of the units are called affordable, and it's targeted to the 59-plus seniors demographic. Mm -hmm. So we actually designed it in such a way so, you know, the showers are easy to get into, there's no step down, and the way it worked is it was an agreement with the city where they provided us a grant, so offset to costs, and then we, and we have no property taxes. In exchange, we charge we charge the tenants 78% of the CMHC average rent in, in the GTA. So, and there's a, there's a, a list, a, an affordability list in terms of people that qualify. And there's a long, long wait to come in. And I would say our experience with people in the affordable units, they're so happy to have something they can afford. It's nice. It's clean. We've done beautiful amenities, beautiful party rooms, professional management. You know, they, they pay their rents. They're happy to be there. And it's just, I think... It's nice to have that as part of your portfolio, and I hope we're able to do something more with the provinces and, and expand affordable housing. Yeah. So I mean, we've been talking about acquiring assets, but of course there's always the, the need to dispose of assets. And I'm curious maybe how the REIT and the private side function differently or how you look at it and what your strategy is. Is it a constant culling of your portfolio or is it kind of once a year you kind of go back, okay, what, what should we get rid of? How do you go? What's your strategy there? Spring cleaning strategy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think, and it comes into kind of three categories, I would say. In one category, there's the component where you're constantly focusing your strategy. So we have a number of retail assets that we, we just kind of, built and acquired over time and and we made a conscious decision that we wanted to focus on the apartment space so the last year we've just been selling the retail assets and not aggressively like we want to get the right price and the right buyer and a lot of them are ottawa based so we want to make sure it it goes well and in the public eye so we've been working on those the other category would be our private equity fund that, like I mentioned, it's, it's a, it's a fun too. fun too. Yeah. <laughs> Love the name. I know. <laughs> so creative. I know. Well, we can't talk. The commercial real estate podcast was as, was as creative <laughs> yeah. as we could come up with. Well, when you yeah. let accountants name your funds, that's what happens. And I'm the accountant. So yeah. So in that one, the strategy actually is it's a, it's a sunset. It's a end date fund. So we're, we're selling those. That's part of the investment mandate. But I think the bigger question around dispositions is, never be afraid to do that. You're constantly should be looking at your portfolio. What are the values? What's the cash flow? What's the future opportunity? And don't be afraid to sell assets that you think, you know what, this is good. That's as good as it's going to get. And let's get it out into the market and then recycle that capital into something new. So I don't see anything short term for the REIT being sold, but, but over a long period of time, yeah, I could see that happening. I guess that leads into the next question or concept about duration, holding duration, and, and what's the strategy when you are acquiring assets? If you're, what kind of horizon are you looking at? We we kind of talk about, you know, we talk about private private money. They just can't take the same horizon as the institutional money. You know, like the life insurance companies, they can take a fifty or eighty year horizon if they want to to make the cash flow make sense, to make the the price make sense. So, what are you looking at, and what's what's the sweet spot? I guess. 
Well, it's an interesting question, right? Because we we buy buildings that were built in the 60s and we buy buildings that were built last year. And so anytime we buy, we really do have a long-term view to it. We don't buy with the expectation to sell with the exception of our creative fund too. So they, we really don't put a horizon on it, but we look at it more from a portfolio strategy standpoint and, and assessing the bigger portfolio. Based on this buy, does that impact another part of the portfolio? And so we really look at it as perpetual acquisitions. And last but not least, was really just covering the different jurisdictions that you're in and, and maybe talking to what you're seeing in the marketplace and the differences between the, the, and the, your core six. I know you haven't got Vancouver yet, but I mean, you're clearly focused on those six. And what do you find maybe is the most interesting difference between those sort of major cities when, when looking at sort of apartments in the core? Or most aggravating. Or most <laughs> aggravating, yeah. What's the most frustrating aspects of, of different cities? Now, of course, Vancouver being expensive, Toronto being expensive, but maybe aside from that. Well, you know, Montreal, is, it, I, lo- like, I, I do love our country and Montreal, I, my family was from there, but it was, you don't really appreciate what the business transaction was like. So there was a big learning there and and, you know, there's, there's cultural differences. There's different, different laws, different right? Law. There's yeah. big difference in the laws and the tenant laws. We had to learn that. We had to reprogram our financial system to be able to accommodate it. You know, the, the cap rates are compressing very, very quickly in Montreal. So it's trying to stay ahead of that. We were lucky to, to transact Rock Hill at a four cap. And I would say a lot of deals now are more mid threes. Mm-hmm. So they're getting into Toronto territory. And the number of people at the table is large as well. And not that different than Toronto where... You know, we do a bid and there's 10, 15 people coming to the, or or participating in a bid, 10, 15 people coming to the table. And, you know, cap rates are dipping low threes, even below three. For us, really to make the GTA possible, it's off-market transactions, you know, families to families or brokers that call a very, very limited group. So it's very aggressive. Ottawa and Edmonton are similar. It's kind of, it's just steady, it grows, it's like a coupon if there's an asset that comes to market, a few people will come to the table, but it's, it's nothing like uh, Toronto and Montreal. Calgary, it's got such a small rental supply. It's the smallest rental supply per capita in the country, yet vacancies are high. So you never really know what to expect in Calgary. And, and you know, September 2018, you could have an aggressive bid. And then February 2019, nobody show up. So it's really, I think that's more a function of it being so short on supply and and kind of where oil prices are moving. It's a bit of an unpredictable market. You seem to know a lot about apartments, and we, uh, we love apartments on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I do love apartments. Yeah. <laughs> so beauty tips for anybody that's listening? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's a, that, so we should tell the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I don't want that to be offensive to anybody. <laughs> yeah, that was Jamie's idea, not so, mine. So the background on that for anybody listening is that I told my husband I was doing a podcast, and he asked me if it was for beauty tips versus real estate, to which I asked him to get out of the car and walk home from there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so no, I, for you guys, I'm sorry. I Nothing. can't, I can't okay. help you. <laughs> well, Jamie does have a panel coming up in a couple of minutes. So maybe you can go. save it, save it for that. Yeah. Beauty tips for that. I'm sure I'll ask that question at the end of your yeah, panel. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> So thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. We do appreciate your time and sharing sharing your knowledge with us. Very interesting. Yeah. And well, we thank to, you. We want to thank our listeners for listening. We want to thank Informa for hosting us here at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. And thank you to First National for sponsoring us. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.